0: Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Before we dive into today's message, we would like to share a unique opportunity with you. On Saturday, April 2nd, we will be hosting our second annual Quest 5K Run and 1K Family Walk to meet the needs in our own backyard. This year, all proceeds will benefit Westerville Area Resource Ministry and Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Ohio. Registration for runners, walkers, donors, and sponsors are open now at go 2 5 k That's g-o-t-o-quest.org/5k. Now let's dive into today's message. So,
1: for today, let me start by asking a question. Do you ever have those moments in life, uh, or have you ever had a moment in life where you were left um, speechless? Maybe it was a moment of beauty or affirmation or blessing, somebody blessing you that just left you almost overwhelmed. It was just this indescribable moment. And I think we get to see a little bit of that sometimes in the Oscars or the Grammys. You know, you get one of these people who's a first-time winner of multiple awards and they get up and they're kind of speechless and they're trying to give a speech, which is really kind of funny when they're speechless giving a speech. It just doesn't work out really well, right? Uh but or sometimes maybe it's uh maybe it's the kindness of some friends when you were going through a difficult time and uh they reached out to you in ways that went way above and beyond anything you could have ever expected, and it just left you With this indescribable moment of feeling so loved and cared for. Maybe for some of you, it was when somebody, when when your your love of your life proposed to you and you couldn't answer, and they were going, Are you going to say yes or not? You know? Or maybe maybe for some of you, it was like an experience I had one time where somebody who I I, I respected so greatly, who I thought I might never measure up to, said really affirming words about strengths that you just never thought you'd hear from them. And it just really touched your life to have someone you respected say that to you. In this Jesus' series that we're in, we're going to look today at a really profound moment that's full of many different moments like that. from so many different angles. I actually struggled with the title today. I thought about saying this, you know, Jesus is profound. We've done Jesus is power, Jesus is compassion, and all that kind of stuff. I thought about doing Jesus is profound, but it didn't quite capture it. So then, uh, this is the reason I shouldn't do titles, and I usually don't do titles. And my next title idea was Jesus is the beater of all statistical odds, and that just doesn't work very well. And then I went on from there and said the, Jesus is, the, the definition of coincidence is all lining up and that, that's even worse and then I went on to be my normal wordy self and I said Jesus is the fulfiller of more prophecies in one event than anyone could ever be. Uh, my titles are usually that long so when you see a title it's usually because somebody else had their hands on it here at Quest. Then I thought about Jesus is the lover who astounds us all. But that seemed just a little bit mushy and not quite right, right? Uh, some of you guys would probably go, oh, man, if I'd use that title. Then I thought Jesus is amazing, but um, I can't use that one. Because uh, Wendy says I use amazing a lot. Have you noticed that I use amazing a lot, that I talk, use that word a lot? She always challenges me, saying, can you just get a thesaurus to get other words that are descriptors, but I just, I struggle with it because there's just so many amazing things in life that I can't stop myself from saying amazing to describe those amazing things. And now I've used more than I can ever use. Isn't that amazing that I just did that? No, I'm just, sorry. So the title for today is Jesus is Beyond Description. Because what we're going to come to and see in this event in Jesus' life today is this profound orchestration of God's plan to both express and to receive love that is just beyond description. We're actually celebrating today uh, uh, Palm Sunday. And if you're not familiar with why that we call this day Palm Sunday, then we're going to read the Scripture in Luke 19, and you'll, you, it'll become really clear really quickly. Starting in verse 18, uh, 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to, Jesus, going to Jerusalem, and he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus And they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks as well on the road. Now Matthew's account adds to this that while they're spreading cloaks, there were others who were cutting branches, palm branches from the trees and spreading them on the road road in front of Jesus like this makeshift quick red carpet. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, saying, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This actually last prophecy in this text that we just read was actually fulfilled in AD 70, almost a decade after Luke finished writing the account we just read. So much of what's going on in this passage, historically, prophetically, relationally, emotionally. I mean, even just the emotions of Jesus alone in this range from this, this kind of determined sense of destiny to great joy to this sense of powerful love to a deep, deep sadness and grief. So to examine how Jesus is beyond description in this text, what I want to do is I want to start by going back and understanding what's happened leading up to this moment. A month before this, Jesus was also in Jerusalem. At that time, he had come and he he had brought Lazarus, his friend, back from the dead after being dead for four days. An interesting side note, a lot of people look at this Lazarus being raised from the dead story in the Bible and they say, well, that's that's just a fictional story. Interestingly enough, one of the most recent big archaeological finds is actually they were doing a dig in the Middle East and they discovered an inscription that said, Lazarus, friend of Jesus, raised from the dead, was bishop of this church, of a thriving church that they just discovered archaeologically in that area. Jesus had done during that month before when he was in Jerusalem and had left, done these incredible miracles, La- raised Lazarus from the dead. He had done many other miracles. He had had, he'd had, while he was in Jerusalem, these powerful exchanges with these religious leaders who were trying to undermine him and trick him. And all that happened in the midst of that uh, Jesus popularity just went through the roof. And it ended up being that he had to leave Judea. He actually went back to the province of Galilee. In fact, for a while, he actually, during that month, had left Israel altogether because the death threats from the religious leaders in the political establishment were so frequent and so real. But now we see Jesus returning. Jerusalem, And he's coming up to Jerusalem from Jericho, the same narrow road we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Good Samaritan. We had the illustration of the video that shows this narrow road, sometimes only four feet wide. And Jesus knows on this journey back to Jerusalem, he's prophesied repeatedly that this is his last trip to Jerusalem. He knows that this trip is ending with him going to the cross, right? And yet he resolutely takes step after step, after step from Jericho to Jerusalem, up this dusty, winding, narrow road. And he does it with about 30,000 other people also trying to get to Jerusalem for the great Passover celebration. And the interesting thing about this is Jesus on his way from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem is also going through the same part of the country that he actually started his ministry and by going out in the desert, out in the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer, concluding with a temptation by the enemy and the angels coming to care for him. This was also the territory where he had started his ministry. It's this poetic moment that only God can orchestrate. Jesus is often referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And now he's actually walking towards his end through the same wilderness where he began his ministry. And I can imagine that he's walking up that road. He's remembering all the healings and, and, the, and the memories of the delivering people from evil and the miracles, and, the, and he's remembering the crowds, and he's remembering these teaching moments, and he's, enter, he's even remembering these interactions that he had with the religious leaders trying to trick him and undermine him. I mean, he's probably also spending time remembering evenings around the campfire with the, his disciples, just listening and joking and laughing about how this person looked so funny when they got healed and were so excited and just, you know, just living life together, right? And they're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is one of the most high holy times in the Israel, Israeli calendar, the Jewish calendar each year. And what it is remembering, if you're not familiar with the Passover, it's remembering 1400 years earlier almost, where the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And it's the last of the famous ten plagues, if you've watched the movie of Moses or seen that or read it in the Bible. It's the, it's the angel of death coming and the over, he passes over Thus thus, the name, the Jewish households, because they repented of sin and followed God's command to do so, and he only judges their Egyptian masters, effectively accomplishing a miracle of delivering the entire nation from slavery in one night and he leaves them the next day not only free but the egyptians want to get rid of them so badly they throw gold at them and silver and all their expensive garments and they they give them tons of gifts and make them rich on their way out because they're wanting to appease the god who their god who had just judged them for their sin the night before but as we look at this passover where jesus is coming up to jerusalem we'll see a very different passover in history It's rich with historical symbolism and timing, and there's so many things going on in this simple text that we've just read that it becomes statistically impossible for all of these things to have happened without God's handprint on all of it. See, he comes from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he lands at his friend Lazarus' house in Bethany, just a couple short miles outside of Jerusalem. And the next morning, he gets up, and what does he say? We read it earlier. He, on the original Palm Sunday morning, he says to these two friends, I want you to go to the next town on this awkward, mysterious mission, right? Go to the next village. It's, the, it's what some people refer to in the Bible as the first God-ordained donkey jacking in the Bible. See, he tells him to go to this song, this, this next city, and he says, get the foal of a donkey, meaning this donkey has never been ridden. Untie it, bring it to me, and if someone asks you why you're doing it, just say the Lord needs of it, leads it. Now, let, let, let's put that in perspective. If I told you to go to Galena and grab this guy's, the, the first brand new car you saw out of somebody's driveway, get in it. Turn it on, drive it away. And if they came out and asked you, why are you doing this just to say the Lord needs it, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, come on, you're going to jail, right? I mean, this is, this is what's actually happening in this moment, right? What's more amazing, Oops, that word, <laughs> Jesus is going to ride this donkey that has never been ridden. Now I've ridden a donkey before. I rode a donkey that was trained to have people on it, and it was the most ornery animal I've ever been on. It tried to roll over on me to get me off of its back, because it didn't like me on its back. And Jesus is going to ride this donkey that's never been ridden, never been broken, through a wildly, raucous, jubilant crowd, throwing lots of foreign, scary objects down on the, the path in front of it, right? This is the kind of hubbub that even the most trained horses and donkeys are going to get skittish and get spooked by going on. And let's let's put this even in more context. Let's put the crowds in the context of this. Jesus is riding this donkey down a pathway through the Mount of Olives. Now, normally Jerusalem was about 50,000 residents. During the Passover, they say that it swelled somewhere between 120, sometimes as high as 150,000 people. So imagine 50 to 100,000 people staying with friends and relatives and filling, overflowing every inn in Jerusalem. You have still got at least 30,000, maybe more, maybe 50,000 people camping outside of Jerusalem. And more than likely, because we know the terrain and what it was like, we, more than likely there were 10 to 20,000 people camping along the route. That Jesus was going on with the donkey on the Mount of Olives. This is a huge spectacle. Maybe the easiest way to imagine this is to think about Jesus riding through all the tailgate parties down at the shoe before the Michigan game. Right before the Michigan shame game, headed towards the center of the midfield. You got fires going on around, people playing, people, the smell of barbecue in the air, the atmosphere is already electric with everyone being there to celebrate one of the biggest celebrations of the year, hopefully, if we win. And then add to that Jesus, right? And that Jesus is going to ride this untrained donkey through this crowd. But It's actually even much, much bigger than that. Because Zechariah 9 talks about this. It's actually one of the main prophecies about the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And it says that he's not going to come in a chariot. He's not going to come on a big war horse. It actually describes it this way, kind of like what we just read in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So imagine these tens of thousands of people hearing the shouts of Jesus is coming, this already wildly popular prophetic messianic figure they see Jesus crest the hill and people start saying, Jesus is coming. And you hear that cascading, that message cascading through all the clouds. You hear that message cascading as the crowds all are one solid group of people all the way in and through all the streets of Jerusalem. It takes a matter of minutes for most of the 150,000 people there to hear somebody say, Jesus is coming because you hear that cascading through the crowd. And then immediately following that message is this and he's coming on the full of a donkey. And everybody pauses, and it dawns on them, this, this is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And everyone starts to rush toward the origin of those shouts. And they rush towards the path, screaming their praise, pushing and jostling to get a glimpse of Jesus, scrambling to put down this makeshift red carpet with their cloaks and the palm branches that they're hacking off the trees as fast as they can with their machetes just to try to keep up with this slow-moving donkey that Jesus is on. And palm branches for them were not just the most convenient thing present. Palm branches are actually a historic symbol in the Jewish uh, in the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, of freedom and independence. I mean, even from coins of that day and coins of a couple hundred years earlier that they found in Israel, they see the palm branch uh, centered on those coins. It's not just a convenient carpet of whatever they can find. This is a carpet rich with national and spiritual symbolism and meaning that they are laying down for their king, their coming king. On top of that, Jesus is also fulfilling another prophecy, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem from the east. He's actually coming in on that very path. They expected the Messiah to come in to the east gate. In fact, even in Jesus' day, it was very common, especially around the Passover, for them to leave the east gate to the city unlocked all night. Why? it was just it was a faith saving for them in case the messiah would come they didn't want him to be locked out now it's faith but it's clearly not much faith i mean think about it this is the messiah the divinely empowered miracle working messiah who's going to overthrow jerusalem be able to overthrow the roman not jerusalem the, the roman captors and set them free and overcome all their fortresses and they think this divine messiah can't get through a locked door I mean, that's kind of like, you know, easier than a Jedi mind trick for them to do that. So it's just one of those really interesting kind of funny things. But I think Jesus getting through that would be really easy. Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies in one day, one action. And yet there's still more to come. See, what we call Palm Sunday wasn't called that back then. It originated this day that we're talking about, but back then, Jesus was actually coming into Jerusalem on what was called Lamb Selection Day. It was a part of the Passover festival, part of the command of God to the Israelites that they pick the best lamb, the lamb without blemish, and God always asks us to give the best, not the leftovers to him. And then they were to pick this lamb and then five days later on the eve of the Passover they were to sacrifice this lamb for their sins and use the blood to mark the doorposts of the entry door to their home as a symbol of their repentance and their forgiveness of sin. And then there were the feast on that lamb in preparation for the deliverance that would come that night and the journey to the promised land that would begin the next morning. See lamb selection Sunday in this time period was one of the most celebrated days of the year. It was actually a little bit odd. I mean, we we probably kind of struggled with this a little bit because it was a family affair. The whole family would go out and they would go and select their lamb. And, I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know, take the kids along so which which perfect lamby son do you do you want and daughter do you want for us to sacrifice? And they're going, I like that lamby and I'm petting it and then, okay, yeah, come on, we're gonna, we're gonna kill it and eat it in a couple days. You know, it's just kind of one of those odd, it's not like a petting zoo, is it? It's kind of one of those odd moments. Imagine 120,000 to 150,000 people trying to pick their lamb for their family. Let's just say the average family goes four. That means there's 35,000 lambs being picked that day. There's an awful lot of bleeding going on around there. Some, some people brought their lambs, but many, many people, probably most of them, purchased their lambs in Jerusalem. So they got all this haggling going on. you got people trying to, to find their lamb. And, and maybe the easiest way to liken this is, is if we were a town of 50,000 people and we had 150,000 people try to come into our town to buy the perfect Christmas tree all on the same day, Right? makes Black Friday look like a day everybody stood home, stayed home. Can you imagine the lines of people haggling and the pressure? Can you imagine someone at, at Animal Sacrifice Walmart who grabs your 36-inch your version of your sheep out of your cart because there's only 24-inch ones left on the shelf because everybody's trying to get the best one for their family? I mean, that's that kind of a feel. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, sent to take away the sins of the world comes into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Sunday from the east, riding the foal of a donkey that has never been written ridden, crowds going nuts over him, praising God as multiple prophecies are filled and fulfilled in one act, coincidence upon coincidence upon coincidence, all lining up perfectly, amazingly, beyond description. And as the week would unfold, we see dozens more prophecies being fulfilled in like fashion as well. God clearly loves creating symbolic moments that shout of His purpose and His great love for us. I mean, how can you even describe the level of planning and thoughtfulness and love and power exhibited in this act? That the Creator Himself would come to us humble? On a donkey, instead of on a warhorse or chariot to conquer and triumph in judgment. That he would come, not with his myriad of armies around him, but he would come with humble fishermen and working class people as his closest followers, even former prostitutes and former demon-possessed crazy people as his closest friends. And he comes peacefully, humbly, in and among all of humanity. Touchable, close to them. Slowly going through the crowd, as the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, intent on taking the sin and the consequences of sin for everybody around him, in that moment. Why would he do that? Because of inexplicably great love. And what's the response of the people in the moment? Very appropriate. They're more than raucous. They're more than loud. Than they're louder than any touchdown in, in a Michigan game ever at the shoot. Right. They're scurrying to honor the coming king of kings, throwing their cloaks, which was not an inexpensive item for them. These cloaks were really valuable, time-consuming things for them to get. And they're throwing them down on the ground just so the donkey that is carrying Jesus doesn't have to put its feet in the dust. They're stripping trees of palm branches and making a carpet for their king. They're singing, they're dancing, they're shouting their worship of God and God's coming Messiah. They're coming the King. The one who would deliver them and restore dignity to them as a people and as a nation. Who would bring spiritual and financial and cultural prosperity. And I'm sure the sounds of this crowd could be heard everywhere. If you look at the geography of the Mount of Olives and how it sits with, with, with Israel, with Jerusalem, it would have been created this major echo from rock to rock. The entire city would have heard this praise going on in this moment, this worship as it reverbed from all the hills around. And this is, this is where to me one of the greatest of all things that is beyond description for me that I'm going to attempt to try to describe begins to happen the religious leaders confront Jesus. They ask him to stop the crowds from worshiping him. And there's two reasons. First, the first reason is actually the Roman garrison that was stationed there was right at the entrance to the city, right where Jesus was going to be coming in. So it was not very far away at all. And normally that garrison had 600 die-hard Roman legionnaires in, but for this um, this celebration, they usually at least doubled it to 1,200. And so the religious leaders are afraid that the shouts of this coming king is going to result in a deadly reprisal on their own people during this celebration. But second, and the big reason for them, is that these guys were worshiping Jesus. And to the religious Pharisees who didn't believe in the, his claims to be divine or the Messiah, that was blasphemy. But what does Jesus say to their objections? He says this, and it's something we often take as a figure of speech, but I think it's meant to be even more powerful, at least a very powerful figure of speech, if not more powerful than that. There's so much power and awe within God that when His presence is revealed among us for who He is, the only response to Him really can be worship. And Jesus, in response to the Pharisees demanding that, says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones, all of creation will cry out in worship of me. God's presence is and power is so awesome, it's beyond description. And it can only result in this worship from all of creation. His presence, when it's fully revealed, elicits utter worship because God is indescribably loving and patient and kind and just and forgiving and healing and powerful. And the more we know God, The more we experience Him, the more our lives are marked with this heart of orientation of worship to God. Matthew 6.21, Jesus says it this way. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Jesus is saying between that statement and this statement of the rocks crying out is this core truth of all reality, and it's simply this, that every one of us worships. Even an atheist worships. We can't help but worship. The question is, what do we worship? We may be worshiping the affirmation we get from our success. We may be worshiping the things that make us feel successful or good about ourselves. We may be worshiping the fun or the entertainment that brings us a sense of joy. We may be worshiping the idea of sex, or we may be worshiping the being good-looking, or we may even be worshiping just being honorable, good family people, right? And all those things, there's a place that God has for them in life that are good, and they're meant to be enjoyed, they're gifts, but Jesus says that all those things are not the ultimate thing. Only He, God, the creator of the universe is the ultimate thing whose presence and power and love and majesty and wisdom demands ultimate worship. That even if we don't, as people, cry out and worship, all of creation will, the rocks will. And the question is do we let him be in that ultimate place as the focus of our worship? Or are there some things in our lives that are more important than our worship of God? Do other things supplant our desire to worship God? Or do my desires to be respectful, respectable or successful or attractive cause me to shy away from exuberant worship of God? You see, the Pharisees valued respectability and power and order more than being exuberantly worshipful in their response to God the, in Jesus. and Jesus. And I'm not asserting in any way today that our worship has to be this raucous thing that we see in this picture. If it never happens in our lives that we have that experience, then there may be barriers that we're allowing to be in the way that we need to overcome, but it doesn't have to be that way all the time. What I'm actually pointing to today is a perspective or an attitude of orientation in our life. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of being a part of Tom Ben's uh, uh, mother's funeral. Tom is our drummer today. He's right over here. Her, her name was Mary Mae Mead. As I was eating inexpensive, uh, good Chinese food with Tom, talking about his mom, one of the things that stood out to me about her faith in Jesus was when, whenever Tom would talk about he said, whenever, whenever I was at home and having a difficult day or whenever I was in a difficult stretch in life and I was just struggling with being down in life, his mom would would empathize with that with him, but then she'd always get around to saying, yeah, but God is so good. And as long as we're alive, he has something really, really good for us to be involved with. And it made me begin to wonder. I mean, she died three days, like three or four days short or whatever it was of 98 years old, healthy and happy almost all the way to the end. And it made me wonder if that if that focus had anything to do with her vibrance that long all the way to the end. But, but Tom went on and he said, and everybody else who talked about her at the, at the memorial went on saying, she just, she just looked at life and saw God everywhere and saw beauty everywhere. She lived with this curious anticipation of the beauty and the presence of God showing up, whether it was in feeding the squirrels or the coons or the stray cats or, or feeding and clothing someone in need that she met. Everyone who shared at the memorial talked about how that perspective had rubbed off on them. And that is a heart of worship, is it not? Seeing God's beauty, seeing His presence, His power, His goodness in every moment of every day, it colors the way we approach life and how we respond in both the simple things and in those moments that leave us speechless because of the beauty or the power of that experience, right? I mean, there are no words to fully capture it. But I think there's even a deeper look that goes even beyond that yet in this first account of Palm Sunday that's related to it. And it's this. Has it ever struck you as ironic or perplexing that Jesus rabidly defends how pleasing and right the crowd's worship of him is as he enters Jerusalem? Knowing that in less than a week, many of these same people are going to be chanting, crucify him. And yet he defends and loves to receive their worship. I mean, if it was me and I was in Jesus' shoes, I suspect if it was you and you were in Jesus' shoes in those moments, knowing the reality of that coming fickleness and that betrayal that was going to be a part of that, that I would have many feelings and I would have many words, but they probably wouldn't be the same as Jesus in that moment. I mean, I would probably be looking at these people and I'd have a sense of bitterness. I'd be horribly sad or I'd be angry all at once. I'd certainly be distrustful. I'd, I'd want to confront them. I maybe even, I would maybe even want to humiliate them for their, for their fickleness and call them fake worshipers or, or whatever it was. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd probably agree with the Pharisees that they should stop their worship even if for me it was different reasons. Yet Jesus not only receives the crowd's worship with this full range of pleasure and compassionate tears as the right thing for them to do and a pleasing thing for him to receive. He also confronts the religious leader's opposition of that worship with a statement that shows the power of his presence to elicit worship. And in so doing, Jesus shows us that faith, our faith and our worship is really about presence. It's about the indescribable presence of the person of God. A very real sense of the power and awe that God's presence brings that we cannot and never will be able to fully explain, and yet we experience it nonetheless. So powerful is the presence of God that if these people remain silent, the rocks will cry out, Jesus proclaims. Do you ever wonder why when you're sitting on the beach at the ocean and you're watching the waves crash in, the wildlife and, the, and, the, and a sunset or something, and, or, or maybe you're sitting in this beautiful lush mountain valley and you're looking at the beautiful foliage and the wildlife and these majestic peaks all around you. Do you ever wonder why those experiences are so invigorating and replenishing? Our hearts are drawn to the indescribable that which is more powerful than us. And there is something right, something good, something orienting, something replenishing about knowing there is someone and something beyond description, a power so big that he holds everything together, a power so big that even in a world full of sinful, imperfect people, that he can still arrange Jesus' future by bringing everything together as we've talked about today, and he can do the same thing for you and I. You see, when we experience that powerful presence that is so big, pointed to by all of creation, pointed to by our own desires to worship, when we experience that great, powerful God that's so very personal, so humble, so loving, so kind and compassionate and joyful, even playful at times. We're left with this sense of hope and awe and security that can only be appropriately expressed in worship and gratefulness and praise and adoration of our God. The interesting thing is the Bible and Jesus point this paint this picture of this dance that goes on. Because Jesus says... His very presence draws out of us worship. But the Bible also says that, God, that, that, that our worship also brings in the presence of God. It becomes this dance of, of His presence drawing worship out of us and our worship drawing His presence into greater reality in our lives. He loves to see us respond to Him for who He is, even when we're so weak, even when we're so broken. You know, so many times I, and I think many of you, struggle with worshiping God, with extravagantly engaging in worship or thankfulness or praise of God because we feel so imperfect, because we feel like we let Him down. Those feelings are not from God. They may be from us, they may be from the enemy accusing us, but Jesus shows us on this Palm Sunday that He loves us running to Him with thankfulness, with praise, with worship, even in our imperfection. Today, we're going to close today talking about Poem Sunday by inviting the kids to come in and uh, worship with us. I think sometimes uh, kids are a great example for us because they have less, they have fewer in- inhibitions than we have. You know, we still don't have inhibitions when it comes to cheering for our teams. We get really raucous, but we struggle to worship other times. So the invitation today for all of us is simply this. Would we allow ourselves the freedom to respond to God as He desires us to respond. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever it looks like in this moment, maybe there's going to be a moment, an encounter in the next day or so with God where it's going to be more exuberant than it is right now, but would we come to Him and glorify Him and recognize His presence with us? So, come on, kids. Come and lead us.
0: Thank you so much for listening to our sermon podcast if you are interested in learning more about Quest, who we are, and what we do, please visit go to quest.org slash connect. If you are interested in supporting Quest financially, you can give quickly and easily by visiting go to quest.org slash giving. This page will walk you through all the options to give online, via text message, or through the PushPay app. If you are loving Quest and the podcast, Let us know by tagging Quest in your Facebook or Twitter post and use the hashtag GoToQuest. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check back in next week for another great message.